Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And my name is Tyler Buckingham. I am the other co-host. Great show today, Tyler. Uh, we're going to be talking about climate change. No matter your viewpoint on climate change, it's something businesses and organizations worldwide cannot control. And climate change is expected to bring the world around us major new changes from sea level rise to droughts to fires, more frequent, more powerful storms. But that's not all. Climate change will likely bring new government laws and policies, activists, shareholders, powerful social movements, civil unrest, and even opportunities for business profit. How can the business community prepare for and adapt to climate change and the cascade of consequences expected? Well, to help us explore that question, we have with us today Dr. Nardia Hag, Associate Professor at the College of Management at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and she is the author of the 2019 book entitled Scenario Planning for Climate Change, A Guide for Strategists, the number one book this summer on Amazon's business ethics category. Uh, Dr. Haig earned her PhD at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. She's a professor in business management. She's a consultant to Fortune 500 companies and NGOs helping them plan for and anticipate what to do about climate change. She served in the Royal Australian Air Force, and her work has been cited in The Guardian, Inc. Magazine, and on the PBS NewsHour. What an incredible guest for us to have. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, Dr. Haig. It is a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's an absolute honor to be here speaking with you today. Well, Dr. Haig, I really am looking forward to this conversation with you. Uh, so much to discuss, and we're really just excited to learn about your book and, and the work that you do. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network are sponsored these days by the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association and the 20th annual meeting coming up in Savannah, Georgia, November 21st and 22nd. We will be at the conference and talking to the professionals who handle this most important of American waterways on the eastern seaboard. Join us there. Register. Go to the AIWA conference in Savannah. You can find registration and conference information at AtlanticIntracoastal.org. And, of course, we want to thank CDM Smith uh, for sponsoring our coverage of the great ASBPA 2019 National Conference. It was fantastic. All y'all probably already know about CDM Smith, but they offer full services, consulting, engineering, construction, and operations across the project lifecycle in water, environment, transportation, energy, and facilities. They're great. Go check them out, cdmsmith.com. Uh, just so stoked to have them as a sponsor. And thanks again for sponsoring our coverage of the ASBPA National Conference. Well, uh, Dr. Haig, let's, let's introduce our audience, if you do not mind, uh, to, to who you are. Uh, we understand from reading the bio in preparation for the show today that you grew up in Australia, uh, which is an amazing country, of course, with an amazing coastline. And because we're coastal-focused, I have to ask you, were you a coastal kid when you were growing up in Australia? I grew up about 40 minutes 
drive down a quite a windy road from the coast, but I would spend uh, many weeks in over the summers of my childhood fishing with my father, spending time on the coast um, and, and lakes as well, um, and at beaches. So yes, as you as you correctly noted, Australia is you know a large part of Australia is is its coastline. It's a very large country, so not so much a coastal kid, more of a mining town kid, but that mining town was positioned about 40 minutes drive from the coast. And we did spend a lot of time there. Yes. And I also have many friends um, who live on the coast. Well, a big shout out to our listening audience in Australia, Peter, one of our, uh, in our international audience category, one of our most listened to uh, regions there. Absolutely is. And we do try to cover a whole continent, try to cover the Australian coastal issues. And it's a complicated world down there. And it's, uh, we, I wish we could do more. Absolutely. Well, you grew up, you mentioned growing up in this mining town. And one of the things that Peter referenced in the introduction is that uh, after you grew up, <laughs> I assume, uh, you became uh, an. Uh, an officer, I am guessing, in the Royal Australian Air Force. Why don't, just as background, tell us a little bit about how that happened. <laughs> I was uh, enlisted in the, in the oh, cool. Royal Australian Air Force. It was just something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad was in the Army Reserves. I've had cousins who are in the Army Reserves. I have grandfathers and great-grandfathers who had served in the military. And it was something that I had... I had just always wanted to do. And so, and, and I also didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life per se at that early age. I joined at 19. And so I enlisted and I served for, in the Royal Australian Air Force for six years. And I worked in recruiting centres and in the, I worked in the psychology division of the Air Force and I worked in recruiting centres. So anybody, any of your listeners out there that have ever undergone, um, you know, psychometric and aptitude testing for any of the Defence Forces, I was the person at the front of the room <laughs> giving you those exams and doing some preliminary interviews with you. And I also served in the psychology section of training bases where some of our apprentices were trained in various trades and also pilots and navigators. So um, it was a great time. You know, it was a great six years of my life, that's for sure. And as you came out of the service in the, in the Royal Australian Air Force and then, I guess, into your uh, studies as an undergraduate and ultimately a PhD uh, from the University of uh, Brisbane, can you tell us what you studied and what your focus was when you were going through your undergraduate and graduate studies? Sure. You know, I've always had um, a latent or I always had a latent interest in sustainability issues. And so when I studied my undergraduate, which was in the College of Commerce, and it was an information systems undergraduate degree, I, at every given opportunity, every assignment, I would always weave some kind of um, sustainability. You know, if it was a, if I had to choose a, a an organisation to study, then it would be Greenpeace or something like that. And so I carried that through. Then I went from my undergraduate, I went into a Masters of Technology Management, thinking that I'm going to end up in the IT industry. And again sustainability issues were still there and I became very interested in what effects new information systems have on 
environmental aspects of organizations. And so that's what I studied for my master's thesis. And back then was at a time when still many processes and many parts of businesses were in were were still being digitized you know not everything was online and so I got a really good before and after picture so I put that dissertation in and got a great grade for it and then uh, I went happily out into the IT industry and there wasn't a lot happening in relation to environmental issues and sustainability issues at the time. And I was working for a great organization, but they were just very focused on um, meeting, you know, clients' needs. And there wasn't a lot of demand for sustainability-related information systems at that time. And I was working on a project that was a little, it got, it got a little frustrating. And my, the professor who advised me for my master's thesis, contacted me and said, have you thought about coming back and doing a PhD? And, you know, my first thought was, are you crazy? <laughs> but I, <laughs> I think he caught me at the More right school. time. And, <laughs> and he caught me at the right time in, in my professional career because this project was getting a little frustrating. And also that latent, it ignited, it reignited that latent interest in sustainability, you know, that had always been there. And so I said, oh, I'll give it some thought. And I started thinking more and more, put in an application and, and, you know, got into the PhD and I have never looked back since. It was Fantastic. one of the best career moves I think I could ever have made. You know, I think in, in, in looking at your career and your bio on, at, at UMass uh, in Boston, it indicated that you have been working on and researching uh, issues related to sustainability and climate change for more than 15 years. And I think safe to say that you were an early adopter uh, to this issue. Um, how and why did you gravitate toward climate change as a focus of your professional research interest? That's a great question. So all throughout my academic career, I'd always been very interested in strategy. You know, when I did my undergraduate, that was our capstone. Like many business graduates, that's the capstone of the undergraduate. There's another version, you know, capstone for a master's degree, MBAs and whatnot. And I loved, I loved doing um, strategy. And uh, one of the professors of my master's introduced me to this idea of scenario planning. And it resonated with me immediately. And that was in my master's. And we had an assignment of a semester-long assignment that we needed to do. And I just took to it immediately, like, you know, like the proverbial duck to water. And so I got really interested in how businesses and organisations, not just for-profit but non-profit organisations, how they engage with large-scale issues over which they have no control. These are not relating to suppliers or customers. They're relating to very large overarching drivers that will shape the future of these organizations, but over which they have no control and little to no influence. So I became very interested in that. And it is an area that I found to be understudied. So I really started diving into it that way. And climate change is... Um, 
in a way, you know, a perfect example of that high-level overarching set of issues over which companies have no control but are going to have some influence in their future. So I just dug in and, you know, I've, I've loved every minute of it. And my, my after, after working many years to get tenure, I, what I want to do now is to turn my, uh, or what I have been doing now, is to turn my attention back to you know, give back to the community. Dr. Haig, it's it's very interesting because you know we we talk on on ASPN across the whole network and uh, certainly on this podcast, Peter. We we talk to a lot of uh, policy uh, people in government, a lot of uh, uh, professionals, engineers, uh, managers, consultants. People are trying to manage shorelines, manage fisheries, uh, scientists who are studying these things. But uh, business strategy is something that it's a perspective. It's a fresh perspective for us, and I I really think that uh, there's just it, it's always just great to have your world kind of tweaked by I don't know 15 degrees or so, and gain a new perspective. But maybe it would be helpful at the, at this juncture in the conversation to talk about uh, what you mean specifically by. Uh, scenario planning and the the strategy of adaptation, um, mm. you know, may, maybe even outside of climate change. But you know, what? How would you? How would you put a box around that? Sure. So, scenario planning is a method. Uh, I've developed a method for scenario planning around climate change, which can be applied really to any big question that any organization can you know might be um presented with and it's also very transfer sorry transferable so you have elected officials for example scenario planning you know is a very old technique of strategy planning um, that can be not only used for organisations, but also elected commis- uh, elected officials might use it for their communities, or other government representatives might use it for their regions. Scenario planning is it's this um, really powerful method that has been around since the 19, uh, since the sixteen hundreds, in fact. And hmm. back then they would just call it futurables, and it's really about developing different scenarios or different scenes of what the future could look like. It uh, has been used by the US government in the military to strategize different potential paths, different potential futures that might evolve for the country militarily. Uh, from an organizational point of view, Shell, the company Shell, actually adopted scenario planning in the 1960s and really brought it into the corporate organizational sphere and became quite famous and developed really amazing capabilities of scenario planning. And they developed their uh, a method for scenario planning for their industry, for their company. Hmm. And what scenario planning does is it's not about trying to predict the future. Scenario planning is about asking the question of, what could the future look like? So we're not trying to forecast or predict. It's about trying to figure out what are the underlying drivers that are going to or that could shape our future. And let's look at how, how certain or uncertain are those drivers and mm. how impactful are those drivers for our business or our community. And 
I go through a ranking process whereby you identify what are the most uncertain drivers, what are the most impactful drivers, and on the basis of those, developing four different scenarios of what the future might look like. Okay. It's really it's a really powerful way of looking into the future that you can also position existing strategic management processes and uh, it allows you to account for a really wide spectrum of potential drivers. So mm. for climate change, for example, climate change is a multifaceted issue that Facing. You know, it's not just about reducing greenhouse gases or adapting to physical climatic conditions, but those things are very important. Those things are coupled with social trends like social movements, technological trends, renewable energy, for example, right. economic trends, policy trends. And scenario planning enables you to accommodate all of those trends and uh, to eventually... Um, develop a set of strategies that will prepare you for whatever may unfold in the future. I can't, we got to dig into that further. I got, I got a couple, <laughs> I, we, I can't wait to talk about that. That sounds fascinating. Uh, you said in the, in the, in the book and in the, in, in the introduction to the book that organizations cannot navigate, uh, negotiate with nature. I loved that phrase. It, uh, it is this idea that there is an outside forcing agent that is beyond your, control, as you say, and therefore something that you have to adapt to. And this was an important uh, fork in the road in, 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 in understanding what you're trying to do, is we talk to a lot of people about climate mitigation, which is how do you, you know, make the impact less significant? Maybe you're doing shoreline restoration, or you're doing living shorelines, or you're putting walls around the San Francisco International Airport for a billion bucks, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. But but that's not your focus isn't on on mitigation it is on adaptation how do you contend with this new set of factors that you're talking about these underlying drivers can you elaborate a little bit on on the difference between mitigation and adaptation and how the scenario planning approach uh, lets you uh, elucidate that more clearly mm. Sure. And so really, it depends on what you're applying that mitigation adaptation, those terms too, as well. Because from what you've just said, I see some overlap. So if we are thinking about climate change as a broad global issue, then mitigation is about reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and sequestering carbon. When we're we're talking about a community, a coastal community or an organisation of any kind, then you can also apply the term mitigation to mitigating any kind of risk. Right. So you can mitigate the risk of sea level rise, for example, or flooding by doing a number of by doing a number of things. You mentioned seawalls, for example, or you might, you know, putting houses on stilts and, and all sorts of other things. Um, when at the organisational level, I would also consider those some of those things as being forms of adaptation. Um, so I don't want to get, I guess, too hung up on the terms because they can have slightly different meanings at global level versus a regional level versus, say, an organisational or even, you know, an individual personal family level. But, you know, the way that I think about climate uh, climate change, as you, as you mentioned, 
um, is, you know, we can't control many aspects of it. And so we only have a few options at hand. We can um, adapt so we can develop strategies that foster resilience. And that's how I really think about adaptation. Um, We can do that by doing things like altering products, um, altering markets, changing our operations, reconfiguring the investments that we're making, uh, let me see, reconfiguring supply chains or making sure that you're building in more resilience to your supply chains or your distribution channels and things like that. Organisations can also avoid an issue. They might decide to relocate in an extreme circumstance. That's that's a, a a method of avoiding an issue or if it comes to avoiding another issue, let's say pressure from social movements to divest from oil and gas companies, well, companies can divest and that is um, a way of avoiding that issue. Or the third thing is that they can actually decide to do nothing and try to respond on the fly if and where possible. That's that's really interesting. And one of the things that strikes me as a factor here, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, you know, you, uh, you, you provide this framework and kind of process to think about this stuff, which is, I think, extremely helpful. And one of the reasons why I think it's helpful is that it can, this, can be ex- this can be so emotional um, when you're talking about, say, your business, overwhelming to think that your uh, maybe the main springs of your business might might be uh, severely modified or 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 taken out of play by climate change, um, but by putting it into your this framework that you've created, uh, it it might help uh, an organization um, process that to some degree emotionally. You know, by putting it in some in a in a more left brain. Uh, framework. Um, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Is, is that is that a part of the puzzle here? Yeah, it really is. You know, we are all, whether we realize it or not, you know, we are all emotionally invested in all sorts of things, in our businesses, in our communities, in our families, in our paths, in our own ideas of how we're going to progress through this world, of our own worldviews. There's a lot of emotion uh, involved in that. And the method that I've developed, on one hand, it um, challenges people's assumptions and it can be challenging. And I try to, in the book and in my own work, I coach people through, uh, through expecting to be to have your assumptions challenged, which also has emotions attached to it. And then working through it to get to a point where you can develop strategies and and think about other ways that the future might unfold that you uh, a hadn't anticipated, and b frankly can be uncomfortable to think about. One of those four scenarios I mentioned before is very likely to be your worst case scenario. And people in the beginning of the going through this method, the beginning of the process can also throw up lots of blocks. You know, I always tell uh, people in my workshops and students that I teach at UMass Boston, if you're feeling like you're dismissive of this method, stick with it. I know how you feel, stick with it. 
until we get to a point that you have developed a, a strategy that addresses your worst case scenario. That At that point, the value of scenario planning should be evident to you. But if it's not, then, you know, then let's talk about it. Right. Um, all the way through, you know, there are emotional aspects to it. Once you, I found, um, you know, one, I've, I've worked through this method a number of times on a number of different issues. One of the first things I take people through is a mini scenario planning exercise, which is actually related to them personally. Hmm. And they are asking the question uh, of what might their career look like in 15 years or what might their retirement look like in 15 years if they're a little bit older like me. And so, that can be really confronting. And um, so it, it, they throw up lots of blocks. We work through it. And then once they get to a stage of developing a strategy for their worst case scenario, you get this feeling of calm, relief, and uh, and that you have a way through it regardless of what happens. So that's another emotional aspect to it, right? It's like a roller coaster ride. Wow. Yeah, I think that – so the idea that, that you're bringing people into a proximity with the with something that is pretty overwhelming and can be frightening, uh, frankly, to think about um, and getting them used to being in the presence of that issue, in the presence of that confront, confrontation, letting them work through the worst case, come to a level of comfort about it, uh, it sounds like it's effective. Uh, uh, I'm, I think I have a client for you. <laughs> I got to tell you, Tyler and I did an interesting <laughs> interview with the Maine Lobstermen's Association. And you're up there in Boston where lobster is a big deal. Uh, but the Maine Lobstermen's Association is in a pitch battle with the uh, federal government over uh, fishing gear regulation in the Gulf of Maine. And it's partly driven by climate change as the, huh. as, as the lobsters have migrated further north uh, and the changes in the food supply. And basically, it's about the right whales. But as an organization uh, encountering this change of circumstance that they're facing, uh, it seems that there's a lot of resistance to accepting the fact that the world is changing around them physically. Um, is that the point that you, that the scenario planning lets you uh, get into and tackle? It really is. And, you know, I, I first of all, I feel for anybody whose industry is changing um, a great deal or that the physical world is changing around them and adaptation is needed. So I definitely feel for those lobster men up in Maine uh, and, and anybody else in those kinds of circumstances. It really is. The good thing about scenarios as well is that you don't need consensus, um, we live in a democratic society where we have lots of different views on all sorts of things all day, every day. And scenario, the reason for having four scenarios is that you get, you don't have to agree. Uh, you know, none of them are, they're all weighted equally. We have to treat them as equally probable. And everybody's most most people's views in, in the crowd, in the audience or on the team, if you like, they're going to be represented in one or more of those scenarios. So they might not like the scenario in, in quadrant four. Uh, it might not be very comfortable for them, but they also have other scenarios that, you know, that they recognize more readily. Um, there are, 
there are lots of different ways that scenario planning deals with diverse views and helps people, as you said, realize that things are changing. Um, you know that, and I, I think when when humans are involved, you know, if it's a, if it, if it's a group of people. Um, conversing with a, a regulator or a group of regulators or any kind of policymakers, there is still some ability to negotiate. Uh, but when it comes to those lobsters moving north, there ain't no negotiating with that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that's very true. And uh, so the, the, the fourth box is uh, the worst case scenario. What are, what are, I mean, obviously there's going to be a spectrum here, but uh, what are the other three? How how would you categorize the other three uh, scenarios? So the first, I don't really categorize. It's it's it depends on uh, um, how the process is going for any given organization. Scenario planning provides a method to develop a very tailored uh, scenario plan and strategy for any given organization. So what usually happens is that one of them is usual. Scenario. It might not be quadrant four. It might be usually. Um, usually, it's actually scenario one. So we go through a method of identifying underlying drivers. Examples of underlying drivers for climate change might be sea level rise. It might be, uh, depending on your organisation, technological trends, extreme weather events, policy change, uh, changes in social movements. You know, we see the Fridays for Future. Um, the youth strike, climate strikes going on all around the world at the moment. That is a driver. And we take all of those drivers and we find a time horizon that works. I usually suggest 25 years, but people can, anything over about 10 years, you know, we can certainly work with. And the question is, well, what could this driver look like? What could the state of this driver look like 10 years or 20 years down the track? Hmm. And what kind of impact would it have on our organization? We go through that process of doing all that research on a number of different drivers and then we rank them according to uncertainty and impact and the scenarios are developed the four scenarios are developed uh, according to the two highest ranking different combinations of the two highest ranking drivers and we don't throw the other drivers out they're all going to be accounted for but those two highest ranking drivers which are in combination most uncertain and most impactful, so therefore could bring the, mo- the most surprises, they provide the scaffolding for the four main scenarios. And to get to answer your question directly, I know academics always give lots of introduction before they get to the point, so now I'm going to get to the point. <laughs> if those drivers, if those two high-ranking drivers are both negative, if they are bringing negative impacts, then scenario one will be your worst case scenario. You know, I really love that as a framework of, of attacking a very complex multifaceted problem that, it, that you're trying to, it really sounds like situational awareness. Let's get real about what's, what's affecting the world that we operate in. I loved the quote in the book somewhere. I, uh, it said, you know, that you have to, you exist in the physical world, and the physical world affects what you do, and that's the constraint you have to contend with. Uh, I really think that's quite right. And the, the other thing I liked is how you categorize the potential types of ch- climate change impacts in the scenario, the development of the s- scenarios. And if I can, I'm going to just tick them off. 
but changes in the physical, natural environment. And you mentioned these, it, it could be assets or infrastructure or suppliers or markets, but mm -hmm. the physical, natural environment, changes in policy, which I think is really so important, obviously, in this debate internationally on what is going to be the international response to this problem. We're already seeing it all over the world. The International Maritime Organization's limits on bunker fuel and low-carbon fuels for shipping all over the world are going into effect in January. Just off of Massachusetts there, the Block Island offshore wind energy farm uh, up in the northeast, the highest uh, lease sales ever for offshore wind tracks are powerful new incentives for for conversion into into and in, in, in how the energy industry is being transformed. And then you have this other one that I think is so fascinating, this changes in shareholders and market sentiment and the potential for social unrest. I'm like, wow, you know, that seems like such a difficult thing to get a handle on. I guess we're talking about Greta Thunberg here, who's, as you know, everybody knows is the is the 14-year-old who sat outside the embassy in Sweden and started... Maybe one of the most famous people in the world these days. <laughs> these days. I mean, she started an international movement that's going to affect uh, these yeah. uh, businesses. I mean, how do, you, how do you contend with this third thing, this sh market sentiment, social unrest, social movements? Jeez, that seems tough. It's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And... But it comes down to really um, needing any organization. I mean, on a global level, there are just so many drivers out there. And even that last one of social unrest and and uh, market sentiment, even that can break out into multiple different drivers. And I go through in the book how, how to do that. But it's what... When it comes down to any given community or any given organisation, it's about understanding the subset of issues that are going to affect you. Um, and so the method takes you through how to identify those issues. But, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. To get back to your question, just that, you know, the social issues, the social unrest, which we're, you know, which we're seeing unfolding. And Greta Thunberg's movement is – the way that I see that is – it, it, she is punctuating in an absolutely undeniable way the entry of a new generation into the climate change conversation. And they are letting us know they feel very strongly about it, they're very passionate, and they're quite angry. And it, this gets to, if we think back to basic sustainability principles, what they're telling us is that intergenerational equity is really important. And, and they're not happy with how previous generations have handled the, or, or mishandled this issue. Um, so it's really important, you know, it's really important. Any companies out there with, um, if you think about shareholder activists, they're another form of, of you know, social movement. Series.org, for example, and other organisations are, have been for many years now organising um, investors to, develop shareholder resolutions to push companies in the direction of recognising climate change and declaring climate risks and aligning themselves with things like the Paris, the Paris Climate Agreement or previous climate agreements. It's, it's growing. We were now seeing employees walk out of companies, large companies like Amazon, because they're not happy with how the company is responding to climate change. And the company 
it's keeping, you know, the, the customers that it's choosing to serve, for example, or the suppliers that, that some of these companies are choosing to use, and they want action. That's, uh, very, again, very interesting. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, one of the things that you uh, talked about in the book is the Google, this Google uprising. Uh, what was that story? So Google um, employee activists, employees, and, and this is the same with uh, Amazon more recently, you know, I mean, employees are just not happy with the company's overall response to climate change. And, you know, whether it be Google selling services to um oil and gas companies or whether it be Amazon not just not you know not doing enough on climate change employees are and and these are the same some of the same people that are out on the streets at the climate protests you know they are wanting to company to do more and they are showing that they have the ability to organize and push their company forward. The amazing thing about social media and about technology these days is these types of, this type of organizing can be done really very quickly. So it's not just one or two employees that might be either ignored or worst case, you know, dismissed or fired. You can you can do that to one or two two employees. You can't do that to twenty thousand employees. And so, I know there's a lot of criticism about social media and 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 things like that these days with privacy issues. And I'm on board with those. the uh, The good thing about social media is it allows all of these people in disparate places, different locations, to organise really quickly and to realize how much support they have and take action. Wow. And so that social media pressure, these, the, and this is, this is interesting that you consider these, and I think they quite rightly are, considered derivatives of the climate, the physical changes in the environment, uh, driving social mores into new places, changing social values, changing customer expectations, shareholder expectations, all of that is so important. And the the thing the other example that you cited in the book uh, it was the PG and E bankruptcy recently the power company out in California uh, whose power lines were uh, implicated in the massive fires out there Paradise the city of Paradise uh, declaring bankruptcy the Wall Street Journal described it as the first major corporate casualty of climate change I thought that was interesting uh, do you when you look at that example. Uh, and you kind of assess this after the fact, um, does that look like an example of someone who did not prepare appropriately or sufficiently uh, for the change in circumstances that affected their business? I I would say so, um, absolutely. You know, and PG&E, now they're in a... Um, I mean, yes, they could have been much more proactive about it, and it's a... It's, it's, it's a I mean, it's, it's devastating, you know, what happened, that the fires, the deaths, just the loss. And what we see now is, PG, I mean, PG&E just in, within the last week in California have, they shut down people from their grid. They closed parts of the grid to make sure that they weren't going to cause any further uh, wildfires. 
And I mean, it comes down to an operational level. You know, what could PG&E have done to um, reduce the chances of of their infrastructure creating wildfires? You know, it comes down to maintenance. It comes down to making sure that um, bush trees and bushland and uh, are out of the way of of the infrastructure. And you know, those are things that don't get done overnight. That's a system that has to be maintained of, right. of maintaining infrastructure and and also being able to see uh, what might happen should those investments not be made. And, you know, I so the answer is yes. Yeah. I would I would say that while scenario planning might not have predicted exactly what have happened, what has what did happen, it could have given them a uh, a view of what uh, of more extreme things that were possible. This show is also brought to you by the DHI Group. DHI are the first people you should call when you have a tough challenge to solve in a water environment, be it a river, a reservoir, an ocean, a coastline or within a city or a factory. Their knowledge of water environments is second to none. It represents 50 years of dedicated research and real-life experiences from more than 140 countries. They strive to make their knowledge globally accessible to clients and partners by channeling it through local teams and unique software. You should check them out. We've got advertisements on coastalnewstoday.com. We've been profiling them in the Daily Blast email. But go to dhigroup.com to learn more. A catastrophic failure, really, for the company of that size to right. declare bankruptcy. And and the shutdown of, of the distribution of power in California, I just got to think, is not going to serve the long-term interests of the companies. Uh, folks depend on the reliability of this power, I, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, any company with any uh, resources is going to shift or try to find a backup. Uh, I, I think it can't be a good business model for them to not. But I get the risk, and they're like, we can't take this risk. But it's not all bad news. I, the other thing I thought was really interesting is the story that you, you write about. about the uh, It's Okanagan Valley in British right. Columbia, and the farmers up there, and this explosion in the wine industry. I mean, so climate change creates business opportunity and profit. Can you tell our listeners about the the Okanagan Valley up in British Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in 2007, I think it was, this is, this is a Wall Street Journal report that I show to in, in most of my workshops. Um, it's one of a few um, examples. But the Wall Street Journal reported, you know, that in the previous 60 years, the growing season in Canada's Okanagan Valley had increased by 11 days. Now, the Okanagan Valley had was traditionally dairy farming and apple growing country, but a few early movers, a few farmers traded in their cows and fruit trees a few decades ago to plant grapevines because they are close to the land. They could see the seasons changing. And as a result, uh, the, they changed industry. So they, they're still in agriculture, but they changed from apples and cows to winemaking. And as a result, the value of their land increased from a couple of thousand dollars per acre to a couple of hundred thousand dollars per acre. And the number of wineries, of course, exploded as well. And, you know, the wine in the, in the beginning, like any new wine region, starts out not winning many awards. But now some of the wine coming out of that region is 
winning some very respectable awards. So that's one example of early movers and how they can take advantage of a changing climate, if you like. On the other end of that spectrum, uh, winemakers are all over the world in more traditional winemaking areas in France, for example, uh, in Australia as well. Uh, winemakers are starting to look for appropriate land and conditions in cooler climates because where they're uh, vines are currently growing are, you know, this, or, or they're going to look at different varietals of grapes because the temperature increases are, um, are meaning that their traditional grapes don't grow quite as well in that region. I don't know a lot about winemaking, but I do know it's quite uh, sensitive to temperature and water. So it's it's working at both ends. You know, if you if you're a if you're an early mover like the farmers in the Okanagan Valley, it can be a great opportunity for you. If you wait and 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 are reactive to it, then you might find yourself on the back foot. I think that that's a really important uh, point. And you know, we brought up Greta earlier, and um, you know, we have a good chunk of our audience, Peter, or some some younger uh, folks, some students, uh, college students, etc. And you know, one of the things that I think is very clear that you're putting out there is that there are totally opportunities uh, associated with uh, climate change as well. And um, there will be new uses for, our, you know, in our focus in coastal lands, there will be new uses, uh, new businesses, new services, new organizations. Uh, there is really plenty of opportunity uh, around the corner that seems like the hard part, uh, it's much harder if you are like an ensconced business or, you know, if you're a, a beach house homeowner and the shoreline is ret- is uh, is eroding in front of your place, uh, that business might not be able to exist the way it is currently constituted. Uh, and that could be really quite scary. But my point is, is that this can cut both ways. So it's not, the glass is not all half empty here for our youngsters. Uh, what are you? What are some of your thoughts on how we can apply this in, on the coast? How we can apply this this way of thinking about strategy? Um, you're up in Boston, a city that is in, going to be investing billions of dollars in its coastal resiliency over the coming, you know, thirty to fifty to hundred years. Um, how should city planners, coastal planners, managers? plan and incorporate this type of thinking into uh, their adaptation plans? That's a great question. And what you're referring to is, is especially for these businesses and other organizations that have a lot of infrastructure and capital assets, it's about path dependencies. You know, we invest in land, we invest in buildings, we invest in infrastructure. And so that the path dependency comes in and that it, that pushes us down a certain path. And once you're a certain way down that path, it becomes a major operation to change course. And you know, and some people are able to do that more easily than others. So, yeah, the beach house owner or the uh, the person who is in the fishing industry and has one or more boats, for example, or a port or anything or, or anything, any other type of industry all has path dependencies. I'll say that the first 
the first step in really starting to think about how these all these issues might affect you is to really examine your geographic exposure. Um, what I find is that once you can map something visually, things fall into place very naturally. So if there are so th- those those questions of what should we do and when and how start to fall into place and be answered automatically. Because when you are presented with a visual that that shows you, okay, this is a map of potential sea level rise and I see that, you know, our asset, our building or our whatever it is, is potentially going to be affected, your brain, because we are human and we always go into solution mode, uh, even if we, we go through despair, we, all, we you generally get to solution mode. You go into this mode that, that where you think, oh, if okay, if that happens, I've got to do this. Or in that scenario, I Survival do Survival almost. Yeah, exactly. And that's why scenarios are so powerful because you, you know, you're presenting these potential scenes of the future and you can put yourself into each of those futures into each of those scenarios and think, oh, I would do that in this one or that in that one. And so a good place to start is to download maps, find maps, go to uh, maps from local governments, flood maps, for example, reports published in intergovernmental on climate change. sorry, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, the IPCC. Mm-hmm. There are also many interactive kind of online maps for all sorts of things like changes in temperature, precipitation levels, sea level rise and flooding, extreme weather events. And then plot the locations of your community, of key infrastructure. It might be energy or transport infrastructure or emergency services or healthcare. And then Also, for businesses, plot key assets, key suppliers, and also customers, and plot them onto those maps, and that will give you a a visual. It'll provide a really powerful visual of your potential geographic exposure to climate change, and some of those solutions and and, and answers to those questions will start to develop automatically. So, I would say that would be a first really good step. Hang on. I got to ask you about, let's talk about politics a little bit here. Uh, there is the universe of, of communities that can act, that have the agency to act, a company, PG&E, an oil company, that kind of thing, uh, organizations that can act because they control their own leadership. And with this policy realm uh, of enacting new laws or restrictions on development or you know all of the kinds of things that can happen in coastal communities around the American shoreline. Uh, politics is a uniquely different environment uh, because of the election elect that everybody who's going to make the choices are elected, uh, which means they're tied a bit to the sentiment of the community on this issue. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in many communities, the acceptance of this uh, phenomenon and whether it is actually occurring is still not completely uh, resolved. Um, when when you're doing scenarios, how does how does the political decision making how do you handle something like that? 
Yeah, it's a good question. The political, um, the administration, which administration, which type of administration is going to be in at the time of our time horizon, whether it be 10 years out or 15 or 20, 25 years out, uh, that is always a very uncertain thing. There are a couple of, the good thing is you're not just looking at policy change by itself. You're looking at it in relation to other key drivers. And those other key drivers will help put it into perspective somewhat. Just on the policy piece, though, you know, one thing, a couple of things that I think are, are happening. First of all, constituencies are changing. Not it might be slow in in some areas, but if you look at the youth movements, the Greta Thunberg's movements movement, um, or at the moment, it's obvious that you have a very different view of climate change as some mm-hmm. of the people in older generations, and you know what they're going to be voting yeah. in. really now or a very short period of time and so that is going to drive change in constituencies and that will change drive uh, sorry that will drive changes uh, among the mix of elected representatives and so yeah so that's it going it'll happen the other thing that happens is people will Uh, connect local conditions to climate change when they are surprised by, well, by things like a surprising extreme weather event, by close calls. Whenever they're surprised by climate change, it forces the question of, oh, is this related to climate change? Is this what climate change looks like in our community? And I found in my own research that when climate change hits closer to home, when it uh, makes me when, when it makes people question: Will things return to what I think is normal, or are we entering a new normal? When you get to those types of questions and your cha- your your assumptions are severely challenged, then it, it opens a crack for people yeah. to change. So that's really important. You know, it happened here in Boston. Um, the only reason that I mean, yes, we are further up the coast than New York, but if you think about Superstorm Superstorm Sandy, had devastating effects on parts of New York City and other parts, and and obviously other parts of, of, of other states. And when it came up to Boston, yes, it was a little older of a storm, but the main reason that we didn't get severe flooding in Boston from that storm was because it hit at low tide. You know, that was a near miss. That was a near miss for Boston. And considering that there are parts of Boston that already flood on a king tide, um, I mean, if 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 Sandy had hit Boston on a high tide or my goodness, a a king tide, we would have been facing the same types of very severe flooding impacts. You know, I like to say on this topic that reality is a persistent teacher, and it will continue (laughs) to remind you of what's going on until you get. You get the message. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and but I think you're quite right that that personal experience is what changes it. There was something that's happened, been happening this week in Florida that is really notable and jumped out at us on Coastal News today. And that is the Florida GOP uh, held a meeting and a conference of, of legislators who who spoke directly to climate change and directly to sea level rise. And as a party, 
the governor there, Governor DeSantis, who's elected conservative Republican, has a climate resiliency cabinet level position now. He's replaced everybody on the South Florida Water Manage uh, Water Management District Board to make them more sensitive to water quality and harmful algal blooms, which is a climate driven, a temperature related nutrient level. Uh, deal, but we're starting to see that crack that you're talking about. That the that the reality of of the risks to the state of Florida is overcoming whatever political resistance has been built into the system. Are you expecting that mm-hmm. to continue around the country? And do you see that in other places? You know, I I would expect it to keep. You know, to it, it will. I I think that crack will keep opening up as long as we keep feeling the effects. And if we look at greenhouse gas emissions and atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gas emissions, we're we're already the science tells us that we're locked in for a yeah. while into the future, for at least a century into the future in terms of change. So I would expect those things you know, to, to that progress to keep happening. And I would hope that it would, you know, when youth are able to vote, I mentioned this before, when they're able to vote, they will force the issue as well. And it's not only in their ability to vote, it's in the the careers they choose to pursue. It's in this, when they start making, uh, becoming more senior in their careers, earning more money, having more purchasing power, what do they choose to do? You know, what do they, what are they choosing to purchase? What types of products, what types of homes and where are they? Let me ask you about your students. Uh, I really want to ask about whether you are an optimist in, in, when it comes to this issue. And how do, your, how do your students respond to this? And you, you talk to them about this issue, I assume, in the courses that you're teaching there at UMass Boston. Um, it, it, how are they feeling about this stuff? Is it generally that it's all going to hell and it's just horrible and we can't do it? Or is there an energy to to try to change it. What do you, what's the sentiment in the students and what about you personally as a professional in this realm? How do you feel about the future on this topic? So my students, overwhelmingly, they start off with, whoa, (laughs) you know, I didn't, wow, that's stark. You know, we're talking about various different drivers. We'll talk about sea level rise, extreme weather, temperature change, or social movements, all sorts of things. And so they start off with a surprise at the magnitude of the and the variety of issues. And but then we, you know, we move through the method and we they gain confidence that they can do something. And I have. I have com- I have complete confidence that we can do it. You know that we can address climate change. My finding about companies uh, and people connecting local issues to climate change via what I call climatic surprise. The other side of that is once they've been surprised and once they've made the connection companies can move quickly. We know that companies can move quickly. Some of them are big, some of them are bureaucratic, but once they once they it is made the connection is made and they realize they can't negotiate with this. It, it it's it's it, it whatever the thing that needs to be done needs to be done, they will do it. Okay, yeah. I think you're right about that actually. And, and, and Tyler and I's experience in the past in working with coastal communities, say, on, we, we used to do this for a living, make special tax districts for shoreline investments for storm risk reduction. And, and it was this engagement with the community. And 
going through a process where they ultimately, and I think often reluctantly, accepted the truth of what was happening, but that takes its own time, and then coming to a point where they've gathered themselves back up and decided, okay, this is a sensible step, this is the best option, it does make it better, let's move forward. But so much of that process is an emotional process. It is so based on, it's not simply a matter of information. The information is typically available. They're just not prepared to believe it or contend. Do you find that? Yeah, and this is really getting to what is what I see as being the heart of climate debates. You know, we have people, you know, we have climate people who understand climate change and accept the science and then as you mentioned before there are other people that are still questioning that and then some people who are outright climate deniers and really those positions are embedded in sets of values and emotions are directly connected to those sets of values and so it is a very, it can be a quite emotional issue, especially if you've been quite vocal, you know, and you've 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 been very vocal about your position on any given issue. It's the same ideological and value divide that we also see around other issues like abortion, like trophy hunting, you know, those types of things. There's a very similar ideological divide, and so I think what we need to do is realize that and and actually I one of my mentors who's Professor Andrew Hoffman at the University of Michigan he has written um, a few pieces and done done a really good piece of research on climate deniers and the climate debate generally and so what he suggests and what I teach people in my classes is a we have to realize that good democracies have good varieties of of views on any given topic and that don't that we try not to meet somebody at their position but try and appreciate their values where what values are those positions coming from and then you'll understand why you know why the emotions are coming up and once you I think you can meet them at their values you can understand what is important to them what they literally what they value and then rather than simply restating your own position you can relate to them in ways that um, in language that makes sense to them, in language they can connect to. And then I think we might have taking these conversations forward. Fascinating stuff. You know, uh, I'm going to um, indulge me, Peter. I'm going to. So last night I was uh, fixing dinner with my girlfriend. We were making spring rolls. And uh, Selena had bought all the stuff. Uh, Peter and I had just gotten back from a long road trip and. Uh, so she had already bought the stuff, and everything was set out, and she was making the roll, the spring rolls, and they were, they turned out beautifully. And at the end, she had like rolled them all up; they're all ready to go. And there was an avocado that just like never made it in. We just forgot it. It was it was there. It was on the counter. We just somehow left it out of the mix. And so the spring rolls that we were committed to were without avocado, and we got on just fine. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of this issue. And the, the, uh, the connection I'm trying to make is that we have always known since we were kiddos and learned about 
you know, the science of the origins of the earth from this like fireball and the moon kind of gets shot off at one point with, there's a big impact. And I mean, the planet has changed. The environment has changed over time. And we all know that conservatives will even say that as a, as a kind of counter argument to, to climate change. Um, but we need to remember, I, I think that what, what we are coming to the, the reckoning that we are coming to is that, uh, man is now putting uh, his and her imprint on this changing planet. And that even though that avocado has always been sitting there and we've always known that the planet is changing, it's the rate of change. It's the... We've forgotten about it. We have, we've, we've conveniently forgotten. We've like blindfolded ourselves to this truth. It's true. And, and we, we have, we've forgotten about it. And so it doesn't come up in our planning. And in fact, it doesn't come up in our, in our emotional planning when we think about our lives and our story. We don't, part of our story is that, hey, you know, maybe I'm going to go, go back home. Like I'm from this beautiful little town. Maybe I'll live, well, it might be a damn desert. You know, I've got to work that thing in and it, it, it's hard. I don't even want to acknowledge that. It's painful to think about. But um, this is what we are confronted with, you know, uh, and I don't know. For maybe the avocado thing was stupid, but I have one last point, Peter. I got the. I like the avocado thing. Okay. Keep going. One, I like it too. Okay. <laughs> climate change is an avocado sitting on the counter. Yeah. We don't want to admit. We should put it in. It needs we, to be in the we spring. We forgot roll. about it. It's got to be in. We've always known that change is is gonna happen, and it's just hard for us to see. And I do want to say that you know here here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, we're focused on ocean and coastal issues, and boy, is there there is no better community of professionals and stakeholders than beach people, because where that this is where the, the beach, the coast is almost synonymous with change. It's where change happens the fastest. It's where you can see it. the The edge of of the land water interface is a an incredibly dynamic, shifting sand type of place, and. Uh, that is what we, we focus on and think about, and I do think that there is a cultural component here where, where uh, those Maybe of you listening, yeah. hey, we, we, I think we have something to contribute here in the broader conversation. There's a comfort level, a willingness to be comfortable with, with that avocado sitting there. Uh, we left it out, but you know what? It's going to be okay. We're going to find a way to move forward. So that's my avocado story. And I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> I like that one. I got. I followed. What about you, uh, Dr. Hag? <laughs> I think it's. I think it's a great one. <laughs> I would say when it comes to climate change, I agree. You know, those people in coastal communities are not unlike those Okanagan Valley farmers. You're they're close to the earth they're close to the water and they understand the interaction of the two and you know i think there is a lot of innovation that coastal people can contribute to adapting to climate change absolutely well ladies and gentlemen uh, dr nardia hag professor of management at umass boston author of a great book. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Scenario Planning for Climate Change, A Guide for Strategists. Uh, closing thoughts, Dr. Haig, what would, what would closing thoughts on the topic? Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it has been an absolute honor to speak with you. Oh, I would, I would, you know, I would just say to, to everybody, we wish. 
um, we have ways of of figuring this out. It's a it's a large set, multifaceted issues, very large scale issues, but ultimately they are local issues. And the book I've developed will help people figure out what does it all mean for them and what should they do what should they do and uh, you know to help build climate resilience into all communities and especially coastal communities as you rightly said are at uh, you know they're really on the front lines well if people are interested in your consulting services or if they're interested in putting together a scenario for a city and town and I'll tell you, I'm going to recommend it to the folks I know on the coast. This is a great idea for coastal communities. How do they get in touch with you? How would they avail themselves to your services? Thanks. Sure. So anyone can find me at NadiaHaig.com. Uh, the book is available on Amazon and Routledge websites. And uh, I also have an offer on my website where people can download a copy of the introduction in exchange for signing up for a newsletter that I usually send out every couple of months. Um, and they can they can get an overview of the of the method themselves. Absolutely, I'd love to speak with anybody who's interested. Fantastic, Dr. Nardia Hag H A I G H. You guys, when you're going to the website, Nardia is N A R D I A. It is an important work. I am so happy to uh, you uh, took the time to uh, join us on the American Shoreline podcast. And I think your message of optimism and the fact that we can do something about this is so important in moving forward. Uh, we can't give in to despair and discouragement on this issue. It can be tackled. And it's great to see people developing methodologies and approaches to bring this issue down to size and make it workable. So thanks a lot for doing the book and I, I have not completed reading it but I intend to and I really want to thank you for, for joining us today thank you so much the beaches itself.